to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Wellspring exists for two essential reasons. Reason number one is to equip, and it's to equip the women of Grace Bible Church. To equip means to furnish or provide a person with whatever is needed in order to be useful or to provide what is needed for an undertaking. So the elders of our church and the teachers that we have come to Wellspring are seeking to furnish you with and provide you with what you need for a specific undertaking. That undertaking is listed in this purpose and it's that each of us would shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God. Our pastors and our Wellspring teachers use God's Word to teach us eternal truths that God wants all of us to know. The truth of God's Word is precious, it's more valuable than the greatest earthly treasure you can think of, it's sweeter than the sweetest food you can think of. God reveals Himself to us in His Word, and so we don't have to be unsure of what God is like. We don't have to be unsure of who we are, or what God expects of us. God's word provides the light to our paths and gives us wisdom that we can't find from anyone else, let alone our own hearts or minds. So the teachers here at Wellspring are seeking to equip us with God's word so that we're able to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God. The second reason Wellspring exists is to encourage the women of Grace Bible Church toward the same action, which is shepherding our hearts toward, toward God through his word. Your discussion group leaders, Dina and I, desire to give you the courage that you need to keep on seeking God each day through his word in the midst of any and every circumstance you find yourself in. Also, each of you have the privilege and the duty of encouraging one another to keep pursuing God, humbling yourself before his word, and striving to obey what God asks his children to do. So the goal of this heart shepherding is that each of us will live a gospel-transformed life and that the church will be able to be strengthened in its gospel purpose. So then you have at the top, probably you have at the bottom as well, the Proverbs 4.23 verse written out. And it says, above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. Does anybody have a New King James Version or an ESV? Cameron, will you look up Proverbs 4.23 in yours? Which one do you have? ESV. ESV. Does anybody have an NASV? Sarah, will you look that up? And then Cameron, do you have it? Will you read it? Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Okay, so a little bit different wording. It says keep your heart with all vigilance. And then Sarah, whenever you have it, will you read it? Watch over your heart with all vigilance. Okay, thank you. So, um, there are different words used in this proverb. This proverb is a command. It's in a section from the book of Proverbs in which a father is giving words of wisdom to a son or to children, and the father is entreating his child to guard, keep, and watch over their own hearts. So, depending on what version you have. Those different words each have a sense of urgency and importance. Anything that must be guarded or kept with all vigilance or watched over with all diligence must be very important. We need to remind 
we need to be reminded of how important it is to guard and watch over our hearts, not because they're innocent and pure, but because of their tendency to sin and to idol worship. We need to keep a close eye on these hearts of ours and not be deceived, thinking that they're doing well without any care being given to them. All right, let's look at discipline one. This is about the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. When Jesus had dinner with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, Jesus told Martha that she was worried and bothered about so many things. Can you relate to that? I can. Um, And then he said, but only one thing is necessary. And Mary had chosen that good part. The one thing that was necessary was what Mary was doing. She was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus' words. The aim of discipline one is that we would choose to sit at Jesus' feet each day. We desire to come to God's word with a worshipful, humble heart to hear from him. And each day is going to be different. Sometimes we'll be encouraged to obey in a certain area. Some days we may be convicted by sin that scripture reveals in us, to us. Other days we may spend our time in God's word reading about who God is and what he has done. Sometimes we will receive counsel. Psalm 73, 24 says, With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. We all find ourselves in need of counsel, and the best counsel, the only perfect counsel, um, is found in God's word. So we go to God's word to meet with him, and he will encourage, convict, counsel us as well as reveal himself to us so that we can know him better and in the process we'll be transformed from one degree of glory to another all right discipline two the faithful woman of god is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on god and his word next week we're going to have a lesson that focuses on discipline two Uh, For now, just keep in mind that your careful shepherding of your own heart will affect the people in your home or the people that are in your closest ring of relationships. Those relationships are where godliness and Christ-likeness are lived out. The closest people to us are the ones that you can both both bless the most and sin against the most. The home is very important to God. It's a gift from him, and it's to be a very purposeful place of ministry and care. Look, this isn't moving. Okay. Discipline three. This is about ministry. With a heart fixed on God and help keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So a woman seeking to honor God with her life will keep watch over her heart. She will care well for the people that God has placed closest to her in her life. And she will use her God-given gifts and abilities, talents, and resources for the body of Christ, which is the church, um, whichever church she is a part of. God has designed the body to have all kinds of members with different gifts and abilities and functions. And just as all the parts of a physical body must do what they were made to do in order for the body to function properly, um, in the same way, the members of the church need to be doing what they've been created to do so that they are a blessing to one another, and so that they're um, reaping the benefit of being around people that are uh, gifted differently than they are. 
All right, so those are our disciplines and purposes. Today, our lesson is gonna be a D1 lesson, which means it's gonna be mostly about the heart. And I don't need to like recap it for you because Smet will do that. He will give a much better explanation. But this lesson has always been helpful for me just in order to really understand what's going on in my own heart. Uh, to see my heart, what it was before um, I was saved. And to, I love the part where we learn about what our hearts were like when God created Adam and Eve. Um, the well, I'll let him explain the categories, but they did not have sin, and just how God created us um, originally, and then to see what he is doing in us after conversion is just helpful, and it clarifies a lot of scripture. All right, so Smed is teaching us today on this lesson, and he can come on up. Thank you, best friend. All right, I have looked at the schedule, and I can confirm that while I'm glad to be with you this morning, uh, you will not have to listen to me all year. So uh, that's a good thing. You'll get to hear from some other people. And uh, you should have all received one of these uh, blue trifold charts. Um, and just a little explanation, you've got three panels on this chart. Um, we've got four panels on the whiteboard. That's one extra. Uh, the one we've added uh, is over here on the left, um, and it is a panel representing mankind before the fall, which only encapsulates two people, Adam and Eve in the garden. So just to avoid any confusion, um, you, you, you're looking at three panels here, four panels here. I'm, I'm actually working on a update of this chart to add some things. So uh, I think it's worth the risk of confusion um, to, to add it in our discussion this morning. When we talk about the heart, I just want to uh, establish again what it is we're dealing with when we're talking about the heart, shepherding your heart, guarding your heart. The heart is, to the human constitution, what Houston is to NASA. Right When some astronaut says, Houston, we have a problem, what are they talking about when they say Houston? They mean the central command and control center of the whole operation. That's what we mean when we're talking about your heart. We're talking about your feelings, your thinking, your affections. That means what you're affected by, what you love and what you hate, what moves you. And we're talking about your will. In short, we're talking about the immaterial you. Right? It, if, if in some tragic accident you were to lose your right arm, you would still be you. And someday you will lose all of your physicality when immaterial and material are disintegrated at death. And you will still be you. When we're talking about the heart, we're talking about the immaterial person, who you are on the inside, irrespective of your physicality. And so when we, when we talk about the heart, that is shorthand for what you think, how you feel, what you choose to do, what you love and what you hate. All of those things together are the heart. And so I, I want you to understand um, one thing in particular this morning, and I'm going to give you the punchline up front, and then we're going to walk all over back and forth, scribble on these whiteboards, and you can just listen. Um, I... I 
if you really want to try to write things down, you can, but I want to give you what to write down up front. Okay, and where we're headed here is this is sort of the X marks the spot. This is the you are here map at the mall. Remember malls, <laughs> right? I'm helpless in a mall, right? Outside, there's a horizon, sun rises on the east, sets in the west, mountains over here. I can figure things out. Inside a mall, I have no idea where I am. I need that map that says you are here. Okay, if you're a Christian here this morning, this is the you are here panel. This is the panel in which you live currently. Um, and so what I want to do is get us to this panel, but set it in its context of what God is doing with humanity, and particularly what God is doing with believers in kind of the progress of what happens to humanity. And, and the gospel comes here and puts Christians in this panel. You are here. And the punchline is this. I, I want to get us to this panel and talk about why you can shepherd your heart. You see, on this panel... And on, on this panel alone, we are in a mixed condition where we have the residual sinfulness of our old selves still present here, but you have new realities, grace realities. You have power from God dwelling in you. You have new capacities and new resources so that you can be pleasing to the Lord. You can actually shepherd your heart. And I want us to think about this panel with this punchline, you must shepherd your heart. Because you have residual depravity, what we might call homardiological hangovers. <laughs> that is, hangovers from our former life before Christ, the B.C. days. And so you can shepherd your heart because as a Christian, and only as a Christian, you have divine and supernatural resources to do it. But as a Christian, you are not yet what you will be in heaven you have residual depravity, homardiological hangovers, and so you must shepherd your heart. And just by way of example, um, we are commanded, for instance, in Proverbs, not to trust ourselves. We'll walk through a few of those verses. And those Proverbs are written to people who love God and who are told, don't trust yourself. That don't trust yourself principle exists in the Christian life. That's where we want to get to. So in order to get there, why I, all of this is simply just a, making a case for heart shepherding, for discipline one. Um, but to get there, I want us to see what God is doing with humanity in the gospel of Jesus Christ to get us there. Okay, so if you tune out for the rest of the time, you wrote down the punchline, I'm satisfied. That's great. Um, if you don't write down anything else, um, I'm okay with that. If you want to try to scribble uh, where we go from here, that's okay too. So... Let's make our way over here to the Garden of Eden. Um, each of these, the way this, the way this works is, is each of these panels represents a stage, uh, as it were, in humanity's history. And, and specifically, we're going to trace the history of what happens to humanity who comes to faith. There's another chart for those who are not Christians. And, and it really starts here in the Garden of Eden, comes here to fallen man, and if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you will find yourself on this panel, and the end of it is death, and that's it, okay? But we're tracing the, the history of humanity through the gospel. For those who are in Christ, what does it look like? And, and, and you, you never go right to left. We, we march through this left to right. Once Adam and Eve 
fell into sin and plunged all of humanity into a fallen state. There's no going back into the garden. Remember the angel with a flaming sword? You can't come back in here. Terrifying words, by the way, for God to say something to a human being made in his image, depart from me. Terrifying. Um, and, but once you go from a fallen state through this event right here, I know this looks like a TV, really this is an event called new birth. Once you go through this event into the Christian life, there's no going back. You don't get to go back in that panel and you don't want to, right? And then this last threshold, death or rapture resurrection event, um, we, we don't come back to the Christian life, right? Does that make sense? So we're going from left to right. There's no going back the other direction. There's no going from one to the other. I'm a Christian. Now I'm not. I'm a Christian. Now I'm not. Um, this is all just left to right, okay? So the first event is creation. First two chapters of your Bible, maybe it's just the first page of your Bible, and think about this. The first two chapters and the last two chapters of your Bible are the only places in all of human history and in all of Scripture that deal with a sinless humanity. Everything else in between is we are a mess we are just an absolute mess, okay? So first two chapters, the, the condition of man at this point, we can call it any number of things, but we'll call it unfallen man. And, and this condition is an unmixed condition. In other words, there's not two natures in man at this point. There's not an internal fight over things. Um, man has not yet sinned. And Adam and Eve are created in the image of God, that is, with the imprint of God, the stamp of God on their very lives, so that all of the created order looks at humanity as the image bearer of God, the visible representation of something akin to what God is like in his character and his role. And you notice that in the Garden of Eden, God commands man and woman several things they need to do. Multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. In the Hebrew, kibosh. Put the kibosh on it. <laughs> um, they are to be God's sub-regents on the earth. God is king, and he's got mankind as his sub-king to rule over the earth. That's man's responsibility. That's what God created man to do. Um, and, and those commands are, are really remarkable. And so in each one of these panels, we're going to look at uh, man's relationship to things outside of man. And we could add a lot of things to this. We could add angels, right? We could add Satan. Um, uh, we, we could add uh, a number of different categories. What is man's relationship to broccoli or whatever? Um, but we'll, we'll just look at a few categories here. In the Garden of Eden, what was man's relationship to work? Okay, it was commanded. Okay, was it commanded because... Um, well, I don't know how to ask. I don't know how to ask the question that gets to the answer that I want. Okay, what, what else was it like? Yeah. They were made for it. They were commanded to do it. It was good. It pleased God. It was also pleasing to man. Work was fun. Work was fun. That's the key word I want to put here. Work was fun. And, and you get a flavor of this. If I go out into my backyard and I put a shovel into the ground because I have to dig a hole for a, for a post and pour in concrete and put up a four-by-four four post to build something because something has to get done, that's work. If one of my kids takes a shovel out into the backyard and starts doing dirt, what are they doing? 
play. They're just having the same activity, um, but for them it's fun. Well, listen, in the Garden of Eden, it was all fun all the time. Work was always fun. Work, by the way, is not a consequence of the fall. Okay, we'll talk about the fall of man in a moment and what God did with work. But in the Garden of Eden, work was all fun all the time. Um, man's relationship to the world, uh, to the created order. Uh, the, the creation was subject to man. Uh, we should say man's relationship to the created order was as sub-regent. He was to rule it. Um, and, and the creation partnered with a uh, perfect, sinless humanity. In, in other words, the Garden of Eden yielded its fruit. Can you imagine walking through the Garden of Eden and just saying, ooh, that looks good, um, planting something in the ground, and it just grows and makes delicious fruit, right? The closest thing I can think of to that uh, was um, being in Papua New Guinea, right? Don't they just throw anything in the ground and it grows? And it's just remarkable. The, 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 the Garden of Eden would have been an amazing relationship between man and creation. Uh, what was man's relationship to sin in the Garden of Eden? Didn't sin, didn't experience it, didn't feel it, uh, didn't know what it was. Um, he, man, uh, man there was, we'll say it this way, able to sin, right, which is getting us somewhere, but didn't sin. Could you imagine uh, Adam and Eve, uh, a marriage relationship with no crosswords, no misunderstandings. I mean, just think about the realm of conversation, just speech. Forget all kinds of other sins, but just, could you imagine one pure, sinless exchange of words with no wrong ideas, no misinformation, no misunderstandings, no assumptions, just clarity of speech and enjoyment in it. It would have been worship of the Lord. It would have been delightful to man. That would be remarkable. And in every category of life, not sinning against each other, just enjoying what God made man to be. So what is man's relationship to man at that point? Harmony. If you want to say what every uh, beauty pageant contestant has said they want in life, world peace. Yes, it was world peace. <laughs> Okay, what a, what a wonderful thing. Um, just relational unity, uh, delightfulness, man to man. What was man's relationship to God? Unbroken, I love that word. Unbroken, okay? Uh, it was said that God walked with man in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, God had conversations with Adam and Eve. This is immediate or unmediated fellowship. Nothing between God and man. No barriers. No broken relationship. But immediate, face-to-face, -face, personal, relational interaction, unbroken. What was man's relationship to death at this point? No such thing. No such thing. Uh, we find out in the commentary on Genesis from Romans 5 that death entered the world when sin entered humanity. Okay, so before that, no death. 
Okay, I'm not sure we get any statements about angels. Not sure what to say there. Um, man's relationship to Satan in the garden. We just say pending trouble. That's going to lead us to the next one. Okay. Um, this is a remarkable period in human history. I want you to think about one of the tasks that God gave to Adam. Even before he created Eve, he told Adam, name all the animals. Have you ever thought about that? If you had to go to the Phoenix Zoo, look, they don't have all the animals. <laughs> they got a couple. Could you imagine naming all the animals at the Phoenix Zoo? Just come up with new words, new syllables that have some meaning that you could remember and say, oh, I know what that is. That's aardvark. You know, and that means something to you. Could you imagine, even if, forget the, the species level of our sort of artificial modern taxonomy, but just think down to the genus level of broad categories of animals. Cat, dog, giraffe, duck-billed platypus, you know, spider, you know, all, all those things. Maybe you thought spiders didn't happen until the fall. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, but can you imagine the intellectual capacity it would have required to name and give meaningful names, memorable names, that then you could recall to all of the animals. What a, what a staggering thing. We should never think that ancient man was dumb and has evolved and now we're so smart. Right? We, we shouldn't have this sort of caveman to modern man view of humanity. If anything, it's the other way around. I believe that genetic entropy has taken place such that man was at his apex at creation and has only experienced genetic entropy, junk DNA that uh, geneticists are discovering today. What does all this do? It's just random material in the DNA. It's not doing anything. Uh, it used to, and it's not working anymore. And mankind genetically is on a serious decline. Genetically is in real trouble. We can't last long the way things are going. Um, and the reality is man was brilliant at creation. And, and you get little echoes of this. Um, if you study um, uh, like the autistic savant side of the spectrum um, where people might not have all the social interactions that they would have, but have unbelievable intellectual capacity. Photographic memories, you know, recall of a name matched to a phone number out of a phone book. The Rain Man was based on a real guy. Um, and you see these little echoes of what the human mind was capable of um, that in reality the human race has declined from. And that decline can all be traced to this event, to the fall. So. This event right here, the fall of man, is the entrance of sin, the entrance of death, and it puts man in a condition that we would call fallen man, or on your chart, unregenerate man. Just means the not born again yet man. <laughs> not born again yet man. And like the first panel, this is also an unmixed condition. When we talk about sinful man, we mean that he's sinful through and through. He's not, well, pretty good, pretty all right, but he does some things wrong. No, we just mean man is sinful in this panel. Um, and the fall of man is just absolutely a devastating, catastrophic event in human history that has affected every single one of us. 
Adam and Eve are the only ones who have known what it's like to walk from this panel into this one. Everyone since has been born right here. This is your birthplace. This, this is the zip code in which you were born, which you walk by nature in the futility of your mind, Paul says in Ephesians. Uh, this is the zip code in which you have lived every moment of your life until grace invaded. Okay, so let's talk about this panel. And it's going to help us do a couple of things. It's going to help us have gratitude and, and, and a deeper understanding of what it meant that God would save us. It's going to help us understand how deep was the cost that Jesus paid on the cross to take our sins upon himself. And I think it's going to give us some warnings to, ooh, whatever is left over from here, i got to watch out for that. Okay, so um, let's, let's talk about the fall of man into a sinful condition. And we'll break up sinful humanity's condition into two parts. We'll talk about universal depravity. Okay, universal depravity just means everybody sins. Everybody sins. Uh, somebody open your Bible to Genesis 6, 5. And I need another volunteer to look at Romans 3, 23. Early bird gets the worm. Okay, who's got Romans 3.23? I tricked you, Ingrid. Go ahead, Sarah. Thank you. Okay, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in that context, I believe all is a reference to believers because the sentence finishes out all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely as a gift by His grace. But what's true of believers is certainly true of all of humanity. And Romans 3 leading up to that statement is a compendium of quotes from the Old Testament saying there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good. There is no one who pleases God. Their mouths are full of poison and bitterness. Their throats are open graves. I mean, the indictment against humanity in Romans 3 leading up to that statement is staggering and universal. Everyone sins. All right, how about Genesis 6-5? Okay, listen to this statement. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. All sin, all the time. And look, we, we have to trust God's assessment here, right? Think about the deception that sin is when sin tells you, oh, there's nothing to see here. You're not that bad. You're actually good. Your problem is you don't think highly enough of yourself. That's actually a symptom of all sin all the time and not thinking right. And we need somebody outside of ourselves to say, what is your real problem? Right? The cancer patient that says, oh, I, I got nothing wrong with me, doc. It's just a scratch. Uh, no, you need the doctor. You need someone who knows your condition. And so we depend on our creator to tell us the truth here. Um, when you get to Genesis 3, oh, by the way, uh, Let's do one more. Um, Genesis 8.21. So something happened between Genesis 6.5 with God's indictment that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. By the way, anybody that thinks, oh, but I have good intentions. Nope, Genesis 6.5. There aren't any such thing in sinful man. 
okay? Um, something happened between Genesis 6-5 and Genesis 8-21. What was that catastrophic event? The flood, right? Where God wiped out all of humanity except for eight people in a box. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And, and saved them. Did that solve the problem of total and universal human depravity? No, what does Genesis 8-21 say? After the flood? Okay, so after the flood, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That indictment still stands after the flood. The flood didn't fix it. The flood just removed most of the participants. God was kind to sinners, um, to eight of them anyway. Um, after the fall, in Genesis 3, we discover things have radically changed in man's relationship to the things around him. What is man's relationship to work? after the fall. Yeah, hard, toil, labor, cursed by God, right? Um, now, there's a grace in this, right? Remember um, here, uh, man's relationship to sin was able to sin, it was potential. Man's relationship to death was potential. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. If you disobey me, you will die. And, and here at the fall of man, Death enters because sin entered. Um, work gets cursed. But God says to man, by the sweat of your brow, you will eke bread out of the ground. In other words, I'm going to let you live in a manner of speaking. You will be spiritually dead and you will be physically dying. But I will let you eat. It's just going to be harder. <laughs> You're going to have to plant seeds in the ground, harvest them, fight the weeds and the thorns and the bugs and all the rest of the stuff, and you're barely just going to scrape bread out the ground by the sweat of your brow. Remember the Garden of Eden? Oh, man, can't we go back in there? Can't go back into unmediated fellowship with God as a sinner. You would be incinerated. So here, work is cursed. It's a gift from God, a kindness of God, a mercy of God that you get to work and you get to eat. But it's cursed. By the way, there is no greener grass on the other side. Every job you've ever had is cursed and the next job you go to get is going to be cursed. Why? Because all the way back to Genesis 3, God cursed it. And nobody can unbend what God has bent, Ecclesiastes 7. God has reordered, reprogrammed the universe so that it will not yield what the Garden of Eden yielded in God's first intention with humanity. Why? Because God doesn't want to leave man in this panel as if man can just live his happy life godless. Okay? What is man's relationship to the world? I'll say it was frustrated. Frustrated. The ground doesn't yield the way it used to. There will be thorns, uh, there will be weeds, there will be mayonnaise and uh, yellow jackets and things like that. Um, and, and the world just becomes broken all around man. What is man's relationship to sin here? Okay, can only sin. Uh, so we'll say this unable 
not to sin. We say man is a slave of sin. You were born a slave of sin. Anybody outside of Christ is still yet a slave of sin. You don't have a will that is allowed to usurp and transcend sin's dominion. Uh, Romans 5.21 tells us we are under the dominion of sin, the domination of sin, the kingly reign of sin who rules and reigns. You don't get a will above your master and sin's your master if you're on this panel. Slave of sin. And by the way, um, we liked it. Um, we didn't like the consequences of it all the time, but there was, there, there's not something in the human heart here that says, oh, I just want to love God, but oh, I'm a slave of sin. I'm under its tyranny. No, part of the slavery of sin is we are willful participants, and it's who we are by nature. What is man's relationship to man as a result? Yeah, broken, um, like the whole list at the end of Romans 1, enmity, strife, deceit, and malice, disobedient to parents, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, all the rest. They invent ways of doing evil, and they approve of those who do so. That is, the, that is man's relationship to man, where the sin in our natures roars out and affects the lives of other people around us. And if you've ever been around another human being, you've seen this very closely, and the other human being saw it in you. We all experience from each other the breaking of relationships human to human that sin produces. What would you say man's relationship to God is? Okay, hostile. Hostile. Yeah, enmity, enemies. Uh, There has been a serious breach. There There is a real problem. And the the enmity goes both ways. God being good and beautiful and holy and full of love must react to that which is none of those things, right? A love that says, oh, uh, horrible, awful, devastating, uh, deadly things, they're beautiful too because I'm all about love. No, that is not love. Love loves what is true. Love loves what is right. Love loves what pleases God. God can't be um, amicable with rebels. So there is a hostility both ways. Man is shaking his fist at God. All the while, God in his kindness is holding man up in his rebellion. You realize that every rebel that walks God's earth is walking God's earth, breathing God's air, using God's resources to shake his fist at God's face and say, I don't want you, I don't need you, I'm going to do things my own way, I will be God. Right. By the way, that was the lie and the deception that Satan brought into the garden. Oh yeah, no, 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 go disobey God, and then you'll be what? Like him. Um, and he teased humanity with the experiential knowledge of sin. Can you just undress that deception for a second? It, the, the, the lie never comes with, the, with the, all, the, all the truth in it. It comes with some truth. But Satan couldn't tell Adam and Eve, look, if you eat of this thing, let me tell you what's going to happen in the next panel. No, it, it was a deception. And, and now humanity lives in that deception. What is mankind's relationship to death here? What was it? 
okay, your days are numbered, okay? It is appointed for man to die once and then to face judgment. Real physical death is an inevitable reality followed by the second death, which is the lake of fire. And we're dead. Spiritually dead, Ephesians 2. A deadness in which we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. So spiritual death is a reality leading to physical decay and ultimate physical death. And all of this is just death. Um, what is man's relationship to Satan? He is the prince of the power of the air. Satan uh, blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they do not get the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4. So in this panel, not only do we experience universal depravity, which is everybody's a sinner, we also experience total depravity, which means every constituent part of man is sinful. And we'll talk about that. We'll unfold that in just a moment. But you've also got enmity with God and the blinding deception of Satan keeping us from real life. Uh, man has all kinds of things stacked against him on this panel. Man's own heart is a problem. Our culture is a problem. Look, because everybody's doing it, right? Um, God is at enmity with you in this panel. And Satan, as your enemy, who is called the murderer from the beginning and a liar, is still murdering humanity through deception. That's a, that's a terrible place to be born. And we were all born there. Let's talk about total depravity for a moment. Take you back to uh, World War II. In the beginning of World War II, uh, England was alone uh, against the onslaught of Hitler, who was invading all of Europe, right? He took over Austria, the Sudetenland, and then Poland, and Romania, and Czechoslovakia, and then all of France, and he's just marching across all of Europe. And in the beginning of World War II, Russia was the ally to whom? Anybody know? To Germany. We think of Russia as the ally, our ally in World War II. It's not how World War II started. Russia wanted Norway. Russia wanted to defeat Britain. And Stalin and Hitler had made a pact together to rule Europe and individually had made secret pacts to destroy the other after that was done. So they were using each other as allies to destroy and before America got into the war, Britain was alone against all of it. And so very reluctantly, we were licking our wounds from World War I. We didn't want to get in a war over there again. And, um, but we reluctantly, quasi-secretly passed the Lend-Lease Act where we started giving munitions and supplies to the Brits. We started producing things even though we weren't going to fight. The problem was German U-boats. We actually said, and I'm gonna make up numbers here, but we said things like this, let's make a thousand tanks so that 400 of them make it to England and the rest are at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean because the German submarines would sink all of our merchant shipping. So that was true for wheat, it was true for guns, it was true for tanks, it was true for rubber, it was true for everything we were sending over. They were being sunk left and right by German U-boats, and we had no recourse. What are we going to do? 
uh, and, and a man came along and said, we're thinking about this all the wrong way. He was an inventor. He was a pilot. Uh, he was a, a genius and an entrepreneur and a billionaire, inherited an oil fortune from his parents, and he was building airplanes. In fact, every time I get on a commercial airliner, as I walk in the, uh, it, down the jetway onto the door, I take my hand and I uh, rub it on the outside of the wall of the airplane because the skin is smooth. The next time you get on an airplane, you'll notice that, hey, the skin is smooth. All those little dots in there, they're flat. Um, this guy invented the flush rivet. And a rivet is just a little piece of aluminum. You smash it and it gets hard and it sandwiches aluminum skin together on the outside of an airplane. Well, it leaves all these bumps sticking out all over the airplane that hold the skin together. Um, the flush rivet was countersink the hole and make the rivet flat against the skin and it reduces the air friction across the surface of the airplane. Immediately, that single invention immediately made airplanes 100 miles an hour faster, and he set all the cross-continental speed records. So he's genius, brilliant, think outside the box, make airplanes, fly them, crash them, get out, build another one. That was that guy. And he said, forget the U-boats. Let's fly over the Atlantic. And think about this, in 1933 was the first year that somebody flew across the Atlantic, Charles Lindbergh, 1933. World War II, uh, not even a decade later, and he's saying, let's build a big cargo plane to fly tanks over, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It's crazy. And he built it. And some say it flew, some say it didn't. It got maybe 15 feet, 20 feet off the bay in San Francisco Bay. Uh, for about 100 yards, maybe half a mile. There's big debate about that. Um, but for all of its genius, for all of its unbelievable engineering, the HK-1 Hercules never flew one gun, one tank, one soldier across the Atlantic. It never contributed to the war. And, and for such silly reasons, uh, Congress couldn't appropriate the funds for it, and he got in a fight with his pride over what Congress was doing, and for a difference of $100,000, they didn't go forward with the contract. Just silly. And lots of lives were lost, lots of material on the bottom of the ocean, because we never uh, pursued that path. Um, the, the airplane has another name than the HK-1 Hercules. Anybody want to take a guess? You may have seen it in a museum in Long Beach Harbor. The Spruce Goose, well done. So I'm using airplane illustrations, it's dangerous, I know, but yeah, it did, have you seen it? Anybody go tour it? Um, the Spruce Goose never lived up to its capacity for all of its genius. And the man who built it, Howard Hughes, lived the whole rest of his life as a recluse and a germaphobe in his house with all the resources, all the genius, all the billions, and lived to no purpose, just squandered it. This panel, right, this panel right here is the squandering of human capacity. Think about all the things that humanity has been given. The, the ability to communicate and speak with the living God. To have the imprint of God on man to be the sub-regent sub on the earth and rule the earth. Think about man's intellectual capacity. Think about Adam in the garden and all the things he was able to do. You think about the autistic savant with the, the hint and the vestiges of what man was able to do. Even in Genesis 4, right after the fall, it, you have metallurgy, right? Uh, evolutionists talk about the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. That's a bunch of garbage. In Genesis 4, on the second page of your Bible, right after the fall of man, there are people inventing musical instruments and writing music. There is metallurgy. There is the Bronze Age and the Iron Age all right there in Genesis 4. But along with that, Polygamy, murder, revenge, 
and death. And what a squandering of human capacity. Think about what it means to have emotions and affections. I mean, this grand palette of feelings as a, as a response to surroundings. Uh, to be in awe of a, of a beautiful mountain scene or, or, or to experience love. These things are all created by God and implanted in the human heart. But look how we use them because of sin. Take speech, for instance, designed by God, implanted in us so that we could have immediate fellowship with him and enjoy him in all of his infinite beauty. Now, what do we do with speech? How a great forest is set on fire by a little spark and we destroy one another with our tongues. Think about intellectual capacity and intellectual ability and what does man do with it? <laughs> because of sin, because of enmity to God, enmity with one another, we feel like we've accomplished something in self-aggrandizement and self-worship, and then we destroy each other with our knowledge. And you walk through every capacity of man, um, and it is like this. Can't see. Where'd they go? They're over there. Total depravity does not mean man is as bad as he could be. Universal depravity means everybody sins. Total depravity means every constituent part of man is infected and affected by sin. Your speech, your conduct, your intellect, you don't think right, you don't feel right, you don't will right. You love what God hates and you hate what God loves by nature. That's total depravity. And the reality is... Um, Sin permeates all of who we are in such a way that God can give this statement. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Think about all the deceptive things that are out there and put your heart at the top of the list. That's the reality of the human constitution from the inside out. Uh, Jesus said it's clear that uh, the things we do are the result of who we are. Matthew 15, 19 and 20. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. These are the things which, the defi which defile the man. All that stuff comes out of the human heart. It's in us. It, it's affected every part of us. Think about the mind. Romans 8, 5 to 8 says, Those who are according to the flesh, those who are in that panel, fleshly only, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Think about your affections, what you love, what you hate, what you're moved by. Um, sometimes we think my, my emotions are separate from my mind, from my thinking. No, you can always trace your emotions back to a root thought. They're connected. They're different capacities for a reason. You're supposed to think on truth be motivated by your affections and will according to the glory of God, producing right behavior, right? Sometimes we try to think with the emotions, find guidance by the emotions, get those things out of order. But emotions have their right place and God's designed them. But uh, even how we feel is wrong. Listen to Jesus in John three nineteen. He says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, speaking about himself, and men loved darkness rather than light. That's crazy. Why would you love darkness rather than light? Jesus says, because their deeds are evil. Look, in this panel, because you love your sin, 
You'd rather scurry into the darkness rather than be exposed by the light of truth, right? Why does a cockroach, when you pick up a rock, start looking for another rock to hide under? (laughs) The light is scary. It, It exposes, it shows you for who you really are. I'm not calling you cockroaches. That was not the point of that illustration. Sin is universal. Everybody sins. Sin is total. That means every aspect of who you are in this panel is a slave to sin, only able to sin. You might be asking yourself, wait a second, what about relative good? Uh, What about when an unbeliever helps a little old lady across the street? Isn't that good? Um, Yes, that's good. But listen to how Jesus frames that conversation. He says, you fathers, being evil even give good gifts to your children. So God will acknowledge that someone in this panel, even as a a reflection of God's image bearing, can do something relatively good. In other words, nobody's as bad as they absolutely could be, at least quite yet. The great tribulation's coming when the love of many will wax cold and humanity will be at its absolute worst. But even Adolf Hitler was said to love his dogs. Right, animal cruelty is a sin before God, and Adolf Hitler apparently didn't commit that one. (laughs) He's not as bad as he could have been. And, And no human yet is as bad as he or she could be. There is a kindness of God, a common grace over all of humanity, that society hasn't yet totally fallen apart. We're all capable of it, but God in his kindness is restraining and allows even evil people to do relative good for the benefit of his image bearers, so that he can work out his plan of salvation to save those who believe. How awful would the world be if man lived up to his full depravity potential? And then in this state, man has no capacity to help himself. And we would call this moral or spiritual inability inability. Listen to Jesus' words in John 5.40. This has to do with the will. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. No one comes to me except the Father draws him. It's a staggering statement. That means you have no resources in and of yourself to get out of that panel. Listen to John 1. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. One thing and one thing alone gets you from this panel of total and universal depravity and spiritual inability to this one over here. And it is the grace of God through the operation of the Holy Spirit in an event called new birth. New birth or regeneration, to regenerate. It's just a fancy theological word for being born again. And it's a great term that Jesus uses in John 3 with Nicodemus to describe what happens to get somebody from here to here. Um, It's not religion right? It's, it's not self-improvement. It's not a, it's not a pep rally and, and uh, uh, therapy sessions. 
It's not pulling yourself by, by your own moral bootstraps and making yourself better and presentable to God. It's not cleaning yourself up and dusting yourself off and say, God, okay, now I'm ready to live for you. No, all those things are impossible because dead men can't do those things. Spiritually dead people cannot produce spiritual life. You do not get from here to there by the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but only by God. The gospel, this event right here, is the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the new birth produced by the Holy Spirit that puts you out of death into life, out of the domain of darkness into the domain of life, out from under the dominion of sin, Romans 5.21, under the dominion of grace. What an amazing thing. Christian, if you are here, Christian, you are here. If you are a Christian, you are here. And you are not what you were. You are not what you were. Now, you're not what you will be. Don't think that this little sliver, which is your earthly Christian experience, is the totality of your life. In fact, this part of your life, the part you're living on earth in a mixed condition with residual depravity and a fight inside, but spiritual supernatural resources, that part of your life is that big. And the rest of your life is infinity that direction. So don't grow weary of heart shepherding. For the first time you can, and because of residual depravity and being in a mixed condition, you must. But don't grow weary of it. It's just for a short time. In fact, very soon, we will have been longer here than the time you've already experienced here in the Christian life or your time on earth. So let's, uh, let's move over to this panel, shall we? Um, this event, by the way, uh, new birth or regeneration. Um, on your blue trifold panel, the, the little tan sections describe the event. Um, each one of these events is like a point in time, a dot, right? The, the fall just happened and produced a condition. But a lot of things happen at the fall. A lot of things go on that little dot. Um, at new birth, this event... A lot of things happen right here, and they're listed for you on your panel. Things like justification, right? That is, God declares a Christian righteous. A, a forensic declaration, that means like a, in a court of law statement, the judge says, I do not see you as a sinner, but I declare you to have always done everything right and to never have done everything wrong, right? Somebody uh, look up Romans 4, 5. Romans 4 or 5, that's uh, the license plate on our truck. I'm waiting for somebody to pull me over and say, what does Romans 4 or 5 say? <laughs> Go ahead, Sarah. Okay, so the religion of man over on this panel says, okay, we see we have a problem. Let's work, 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 work and try to make God happy with us. Right? That's Roman Catholicism, that's Mormonism, that's Islam, that's every other religion on the earth. Human achievement. And Paul says in Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work, but believes God, who, listens to this, justifies the ungodly, declares righteous the ungodly. Look, you're ungodly, 
You believe God, and he declares the ungodly to be righteous. It's a declaration. This is why we don't say um, justification is God making you righteous. That's sanctification and glorification, right? Roman Catholicism defines justification as making you righteous. Why? Because you never actually quite get there, and you might have to go to purgatory in the end if you didn't have the, all the rights done at the right time, and, and only if you get your sins purged by the sacraments and then die immediately and don't sin in between do you get to go to heaven, and you never really know, and you don't have assurance. That is not the biblical message of salvation. No, the day you become a Christian, you have walked out of death into life. Eternal life has begun at new birth, and it continues into eternity. Yeah, predestined, well, predestination is God's plan way over there to do this to you right here. Yeah, and it's done, and it's done. Really, just staggering realities for you, Christian. Everything has changed. Everything has changed. So now, having been declared righteous by God, Romans 5.1, we have peace with him. Enmity over there, hostility both ways. Now we actually have, present tense, possess peace with God, having been justified. Christian, you are adopted. You were born in the wrong family. God in his kindness and grace brought you into his family and made you inheritor of all of his riches. You are united to Christ. You are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are set apart unto God. That is positional sanctification. And now you're in the state of what we talked about last week of progressive sanctification. That is where you're progressively, step by step, being made more like Christ from one glory to another glory by the Lord who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.21 all of that has changed. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creation. This is new. And three times in the New Testament, Paul calls this creature, this weird, mixed-up creature with new supernatural powers and residual depravity, all in one person, a mixed condition, he calls it a new man. And, and looking back at that panel, Christian, he says, what you used to be, he calls the paleos anthropos, right? You know the word paleos, like paleontology or the, a paleo diet? What's a paleo diet? Yeah, you're trying to eat like a caveman to lose weight, I guess. I don't know. Um, old. <laughs> paleos just means old. Old man. This is the old man. Well, look, the, the old man is on this panel. The old man isn't over there. This is a new man. The old man was unmixed, only sin all the time. The new man, mixed creation. There's a fight on Galatians 5. The, the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another inside the human heart, and the flesh doesn't get what it wants, and the spirit doesn't get what it wants. There's a fight on, and you feel that fight as a Christian. You may feel as a Christian like you're the worst sinner in the world, even as you're sinning less, but feeling it more. Growing in your affections for Christ, growing in your love for what he loves, and you see more in your heart than you ever knew back there. Right? The, 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 this guy over here um, goes, oh, man, I got to stop swearing and smoking and dancing or whatever he thinks are the like, most heinous crimes. <laughs> got to stop doing those things now that I'm a Christian. And then in Christ, you start having your mind renewed by the word of God and you say, oh, the, 
the intentions and the thoughts of my heart. Uh, those are wicked too, and they need to be cleaned up. And praise God, the Holy Spirit in me is working on these things and bringing them to my attention and, and shaving off the things that shouldn't be there and making more, more like Christ. There is conviction of sin. Look, a fish doesn't feel wet because he's always in water. In a mixed condition, you start to feel sin in new ways. Um, so think about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 for a moment. This is the the wisdom of self-distrust. Look, Jeremiah 17, 9 still applies on this panel. The heart is more deceptive than all else. Who, who can trust it? It's sick. Um, and Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Why? Because of residual depravity and homardiological hangovers. I still don't think straight. I can't trust myself. I don't feel right. I need to shepherd my heart. Because everything the Bible says about the human heart, everything the Bible says about the, the human mind is still true for the believer. But there's a fundamental change. Christian, you are no longer a slave of sin. You're out from under its tyranny. We would say the Christian's relationship to sin is able not to sin. Garden of Eden, able to sin under depravity, not able to not sin. Did I say it right? Yeah, unable to not sin. And the Christian is able not to sin by the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the resources of the Word of God as a new man. Um, Christian's relationship to work, what is it? Still hard. It's still cursed, right? We know that by experience. Um, comma, but work is in a mixed condition too. You know, you can worship God building widgets in a way that an unbeliever never could. In fact, Peter says, if you're working for Jesus, your boss doesn't know. I, boss, I'm transcending your employment of me and my real boss is Jesus. I'm going to make you the best widgets I can make and they're all going to burn up, but I'm building something for myself in eternity. And Jesus is pleased with it. You can worship God in your work. By the way, the grass is not greener on the other side. Your next job is going to stink too. It's cursed. It's also in a mixed condition. But you can worship. And, and there can be joy in it. Um, what is man's relationship to the world? Well, look, Romans 8 says the world is still frustrated, literally craning the neck around the corner, longing to see what it's like when the sons and daughters of God are glorified and they look like Christ. So there's still mayonnaise, there's still yellow jackets, there's still thorns, right? I'm, we're always pulling weeds. Uh, my yard is a mess right now. I'm trying to grow grass and it grows, what is that stuff called? Spurge. That's my new definition of Genesis 3, right? You know spurge. Can't stand that stuff. Um, what, is, what is man's relationship to God? We've been talking about that. Loved, secured, adopted, forgiven, declared righteous, um, and, and we would say kind of two things at the same time. We have immediate fellowship with God, right? There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You and I have direct access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, Romans 8, causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, that tender affectionate word, Daddy. <laughs> right? You have immediate interactive fellowship with the Trinitarian Godhead, the creator of the universe. Um, but not the kind of immediate fellowship that we will have here face-to-face. -face. There's something better yet coming. 
So while we have immediate access to God, it's not quite visible, tangible yet. It is by faith, right? And, and who, has, who hopes for what he already sees? We live now by hope. One day we will see face to face. Um, what is um, the Christian man's relationship to man? Um, there's, there's still enemies, right? The Christian has enemies in the world, um, but the Christian also has sweet fellowship in the church and union with Christ and union with him. You go anywhere in the world, you meet another blood-bought Christian, and there is a union with somebody who may not look anything like you. You may not understand a word they say, um, but there is a co-citizenship together. Um, the Christian's relationship to death is a subject for another sermon. I'll skip it, but we're just going to put death in quotes. Um, I've counted 42 different euphemisms in the New Testament that change the vocabulary of death for the Christian, right? Uh, the New Testament still says, still uses the normal death language for unbelievers and uses murder and killing and martyrdom language when Christians are killed by others. But when just generally Christians are said to die physically, the disintegration of immaterial and, and material you that happens when either you get hit by a truck or you die of old age, um, the Bible calls it different things. And Paul says, for instance, when your earthly tent is torn down, you have a building, etc. He calls it going home. Anyway, there's a bunch of different illustrations. So I'm just going to put death in quotes because death has fundamentally changed for you, Christian. And there's a day coming when death itself dies. Revelation 20, death is thrown into the lake of fire at the end of time. So Christian, you, you are not what you were. You're not yet what you will be. You're in a mixed condition. And again, the punchline is this. You can shepherd your heart. You never could as a slave of sin. You can now with supernatural power. And you must shepherd your heart because you brought with you into the Christian life residual depravity. This whole idea of being a new creation is new by addition not new by substitution. Okay, and this is really important. The, the reason the blue chart exists is because years ago we were wrestling with the question, well, if I have a new heart from God, right? Jeremiah 31 language or Ezekiel 36 and 37, a, a, a soft heart instead of a stony heart. If I have a new heart from God, then how is it possible that, that sin comes from my heart? I mean, Jesus said that sin comes from the heart. H how can that be true if a Christian has a new heart from God? And one of, the, one of the possible deductions from that, and um, one possible deduction from that is, well, then it, it doesn't come from the Christian's heart. Sin must come from somewhere else. So my little sister do it. The devil made me do it. The blame it on other people. Um, that's not the right answer. Um, the don't trust your own heart stuff still stands. Um, the, the sin has its root in the human heart still stands. When you sin, it does come from your heart. A new heart from God does not mean everything you used to be got eradicated and replaced by something totally from him that's pure all the time. If you're ever tempted to think, well, I have a new heart from God, therefore my motives are pure. I can trust me and everybody else around me should too. That creates all kinds of problems because you begin to believe the best about yourself and the worst of everyone else. And the truth is your heart is still the culprit for your wrong thoughts, wrong feelings, wrong affections, wrong will, wrong behavior. That, that train hasn't changed. God hasn't reconstituted what a human is. 
What's new about the new man, new creation, new heart is new by addition. Um, you're no longer a slave of sin. You've got new capacities at the heart level to actually love God. That's what's new. Um, but what's coming here is really remarkable. In eternity, work will be only fun all the time. The world will be great. It will yield what it was supposed to do. It will be in partnership with humanity rather than in uh, frustration under humanity. Um, sin, we would just say the, the believer in heaven is unable to sin. Can you imagine that? Can we, can we even comprehend what it will be like to not have an errant thought, uh, not to be susceptible to any temptation, not for there to be even the presence of any temptation, and to have totally clean, perfect relationships, conversations, and behavior with God and with man all the time, forever and ever and ever. That'll be good. Man's relationship to man there will be great. Man's relationship to God, immediate face-to-face -face fellowship. Um, better than the Garden of Eden, because it's permanent, unassailable, can never be broken. Something else is better about this panel than the Garden of Eden. A any thoughts? It's not just that the Garden of Eden goes on forever and ever, but something else is better. Something we learn through this process about the God that we enjoy forever. What do, we, what do we know, maybe that angels don't know, or that we would never have known if Adam and Eve obeyed God, multiplied, filled the earth, and subdued it, and we all lived in sinless uh, perfection from the Garden of Eden on? What do we know about our God that would never have been known otherwise? Yeah, grace, mercy, kindness, love. I mean, all of those aspects that where God puts on display his own intrinsic glory and attributes he's always had, but puts them on display against a black velvet backdrop of human sin. I mean, think about that. God loved you when you were at your worst. When we were his enemies, Christ died for us, Romans 5. So, way better than the Garden of Eden, um, we worship the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Um, he will still be marked by the scars of the cross by which he purchased our redemption, and we will love him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for today, for the opportunity to walk through what your word says about us. May we trust you rather than ourselves and for your glory. God, I pray that you would equip uh, these ladies not only to be shepherds over their own hearts, but to disciple others to the same end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.